Good evening. Welcome to Legacy Battle. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you'll be able to check out our shows before they're actually posted in the Facebook group. But also join that Facebook group as well. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please get a hold of us. You can contact us on the Facebook page or put it in the comments even on YouTube and uh, we'll definitely be able to check that out. I am Michael Adams. I'm the creator of Legacy Battle. Here with me tonight from the Good Iron Battle Zone, Brian King, the New England sports guru, Alyssa Rose. And as always, Kevin Adams. One of these days, we'll get a nice little uh, name beforehand there for Kevin as well. Um, <laughs> we're joined by a special guest tonight. She's a three-time All-American rower from Brown University, where she also won an NCAA championship. She's won gold medals in 2013 and 2015 at the World Championships, as well as a silver in 2014. She's now a rowing coach for Brown University. Ladies and gentlemen, something I thought I would never say on this show, but let's give a, a good welcome to the 2016 United States Olympic gold medalist, Tessa Gobo. All right, all right. All right. I, am, all right. Uh, I am actually a volunteer coach at Boston University, but Brown University still has a huge role in my heart, so. <laughs> Very good. But I just wanted to throw that out there. I didn't mean to yeah. yeah, no, no, that's fine. Boston University, good hockey school, so definitely it is that. very cool. Well, tonight we got um, a, a lot we're going to be debating, so uh, we're going to jump into this. But we're going to do our trivia question beforehand. Um, obviously, after the debate tonight, we're going to have a Q and A. Uh, you know, some questions for Tessa about her career. Tonight's show is the first show to ever have two votes. We're going to be voting in the middle and at the end. And our first topic tonight is going to be. Um, the greatest summer Olympic performance. And then the second topic will be the American sports greatest individual performance. So two votes tonight. Um, and here's our trivia question. Just put the answer in the comments section on the Facebook page. If you won prior, you're still ineligible at this time. So these two actors who carried the Olympic torch have also shared the same movie role. Name the actors, the movie they starred in together, and what years they carried the Olympic torch. You got that answer? All those answers, we'll get the prize mailed out to you. All right, so let's jump into our greatest summer Olympic performance. And we're gonna go back to 2008 and start with Michael Phelps. So yeah, I'm representing Phelps on this one. Uh, I mean, everybody knows his name. It's a household name, one of the greatest swimmers of all time. Um, arguably he could be one of the best athletes of all time. Um, after he announced his second retirement in, in August 2016, uh, he had actually won more medals total than 161 other countries. Uh, he, he earned the Sports Illustrated Magazine Sportsman of the Year Award due to his success in the 2008 Beijing Games. Um, initially, uh, he had won uh, the seventh medal um, by one hundredth of a second. Uh, to tie Mark Spitz's record for most gold medals won in Olympic uh, in a single Olympic Games, um, and then he ended up winning the eighth um, 
uh, I think it was like a day later, all eight of his gold medals that he won were won between August uh, 10th and August 17th. So within like a seven to eight day period. Now he, he placed, he won the gold medal for the 200 meter freestyle, the 100 meter free, uh, butterfly, 200 meter butterfly, the 200 meter medley, the 400 meter medley. He won in the four by 100 meter freestyle, the four by 200 meter freestyle, in the four by 100 meter medley. All of his gold medals that he won in 2008 were world records except for the one. But the one that he uh, got the 100 meter butterfly first place was still an Olympic record. So he broke records on every single one of the medals that he won. Seven of the eight were world records that were that were broken. And during the uh, win on the uh, the seventh uh, gold medal, uh, Spitz, Mark Spitz, was actually being interviewed with um, Phelps uh, still uh, on the TV. And Spitz uh, said that he had wondered uh, what he would say at a time like this with, with Phelps. And he was quoted, the word that comes to mind is epic. This was Mark Spitz, who held the record for most gold medals, won in a single Olympic performance. He said, the word that comes to mind is epic. What, did you, what you did tonight was epic, and it was epic for the whole world to see how great you really are. I never thought for one moment that you were out of that race. That is a tribute to your greatness. And then Spitz went on to talk about role models and how he admired Phelps, not only for his swimming abilities, but also the type of person he is. Hands down, one of the greatest Olympic performances ever. Eight gold medals within seven to eight days. World records on seven of them, and Olympic record on, on the eighth one. I mean, his career alone, I mean, he's won medals and championships upon championships throughout his whole career. Um, can't say enough about his performance and his ability to swim. One of the greatest performances, hands down, ever. Brian, Kevin brought up Mark Spitz has... Uh... Has Phelps surpassed him as the greatest swimmer of all time? I, I believe he has. I mean, Spitz won nine gold. Phelps is one in 11. I mean, you know, Phelps, he, he broke uh, Spitz's record for medals in a single Olympics with eight. So I think he surpassed him. And Fitz was right. It was so cool because Fitz was right there to witness it all as well. And then sort of like the passing of the torch. So, yeah, I believe that Phelps has surpassed him. Tessa, you were uh, at the Olympics in 2016. Phelps was still around. Did, did you get to meet him? And, and what, what can you tell us about this guy? Yeah, I mean, I did not personally get to meet him. I I remember, um, of course, I remember the 2008 performance. It's just, it's, it's so much racing back to back to back, which I just can't imagine like mentally gearing up for and then coming down from. And I really have a hard time separating like the athlete as a person from the accomplishment, I really do believe that, you know, if you're representing the United States, you really got to, you, you real you need to realize like what that means in terms of like also being a good person. And like, he was 23 in 2008. I can't imagine like having my, I'm, that's incredible. And his first Olympics, he was 18. Like, that's a baby. Um, I'm sorry. Was it 18? It might've been 15. It was wildly young. Um, I only saw, I saw him once. I actually almost mistaked him for a lightweight rower in the dining hall. And I kept being like, Will, Will. And I couldn't figure out why he wasn't turning around. And I like peeked around. I'm like, oh, that's Michael Phelps. And I just shied away as quickly as I could. But also uh, one of the USA PTs, she has two kids. Um, we, we travel with um, certain doctors. I think a lot of teams do. And she just asked Michael Phelps, like, yo, do you mind, like, taking a video for my my kids quick? And he just, like, took it like a champ. And I'm just like, that's 
it's it's just impressive like he's an impressive dude so and like that's so much racing because it's not just those races it's the heats and all of that on top of it and he's just turning it around so definitely impressive dude looks great in that speedo i can admit that Uh, i'm secure enough to say that (laughs) i mean hey we all look that good one day um heck of a swimmer so let's um Let's move on to our next one. We're going to go back to 1996. Kurt Angle. All right, Kurt Angle. So, sure, we uh, most of us know him a lot from like the WWF, WWE. Uh, he was a, a wrestler in that, but he was also, you know, I'm sure we all know he was an Olympic gold medalist in 1996. Which, as he puts it, when he got to the wrestling world, he said, "I won that medal with a broken freaking neck." couldn't get any uh, physicians to clear him at first. Then he finally found one that said that he could because he, he's only uh, like maybe three and a half weeks away from the uh, Olympics. Uh, and he was determined to, 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 to go all the way. So he finally got a doctor to clear him, but only at, the doctor said, well, you're going to need to get Novocaine shots 15 minutes before each match. And then after each match, you are going to be in excruciating pain. Okay, that is a guarantee. And you are going to risk paralysis, and you can you can risk death uh, death as well. And so he knew the risk he was taking, and he was he was determined uh, to to go to go all the way. Um, so then, um, and then finally, when it came down to the actual finals, okay, the guy he went up against, um, they ended up being O and O at the end of regulation, and then ended up having to go into overtime again. I mean, and that's only like an extra, you know, what, three three to five minutes. But when you're dealing with a broken neck, that's a really long time. He ended up um, finishing up that match um, still 0-0. I guess the, he said that the um, he had a last-minute pin, but it didn't quite um, – the judges didn't, uh, didn't mark it down. So the, um, the, the lead official had to make a call and put in that – and he called that he, he won the match. Um, and he did say at the end of that, that he, uh, won that match for his dad, um, and for his mom. And I actually forgot to mention when, um, his, his trainer and mentor, um, for the Olympics actually ended up being murdered, um, at the beginning of the Olympics. Um, he'd been working with him for eight years. So that was another tragedy he had to overcome as well. Um, Tessa, let me, let me come to you first on this one. As Kurt's always so humble to point out, he won with a broken frickin' neck. That's just <laughs> one of his catchphrases there. But um, this, winning with that, does that make him, like, the best athletic performance? I mean I, – Oh, my God. I have so many thoughts on this one. And I don't want to, like, say – I don't want to have too hot a take, but I have a hot take. Um, I know he's a Pennsylvania boy. I'm aware. I know that he's faced a lot of adversity and I, you know, I've had a lot of support in my athletic career and I've lived a very privileged life and I'll be the first to say that. So, but there have been a lot of athletes out there that have faced a lot of adversity. I would bump him down and bring up Jackie Joyner Kersey pretty quick. I didn't read his autobiography. I did watch a couple interviews with him. I did watch, um, I did watch uh, the match a couple times. I think it's incredibly problematic that any doctor cleared him, right? He talks about three doc, Like, mm-hmm. at some point, like, 
could you like he you said it yourself he could have died he could have had paralysis uh, I know the Olympics are every four years. I know that, like, it's it's tough, but, like, there's a reason why doctors were saying no. It's your neck. It's not your arm. And it was it was a close match. Not to belittle him in any way, because he did have a broken neck. But, like, when we look at the other people here, they're setting world records. Um, and they're setting Olympic records. And I'm also just, like, it's just a bit insane that he got cleared by doctors, that there were people be like, I, some of you have kids. If your kid was doing this, what would you, you'd be like, don't do this. I would imagine, I don't have a kid, but I would imagine my parents would be like, don't do this for me. He's talking about doing this for his parents. Like I am, my dad would come and say I was a very bad decision uh, if I were to have done something like that. Um, and I think part of this is America loves an injury story, right? I think we've seen it time and time again. And I think, I don't know if other countries are like that. I know we're like that. And I think that's probably says something about us in ourselves. But uh, I watched, uh, it was called Athlete A on Netflix. It was a hard watch. It was about the gymnast scandal and the sexual assault scandal. But it does frame injury in a different light. And I think when I was rowing, it, I was a big proponent of walk it off. Um, or row it off this is you shouldn't be walking off a broken neck you know so um and again like a, a huge athletic feat but I'm like what he was in the right mindset that was the athletic mindset but that's why there are doctors there to tell you no so well and it led to a major pain pill addiction for him right you know he's gone through a lot after yeah. those Olympics mm -hmm. but let me tell you exactly why he won the three eyes intelligence, <laughs> intensity, and integrity. integrity. <laughs> so, if anybody doesn't know what that means, then they clearly haven't watched a lot of wrestling. Let, let me get 15 seconds real quick on this one. Just yeah, go quick. ahead. Go ahead. Because I, I actually wrestled when I was in high school and middle school. And you know. I'll tell you what, though. Like, I can play a whole hockey, like a whole match, like a whole, whole game of hockey and be fine. I've lasted a full wrestling match and when I got off that mat I wanted to throw up my whole like insides I was so dead so tired like wrestling is one of the hardest sports I've ever played in my life and for him to do it yeah he shouldn't have been out there the broken neck but for him to do it with a broken neck I mean that that I mean that's that's pretty impressive um I will say that yeah there's no there's no question right but athletes do do perform when they're injured all the time um, it's just, I like, it's, it was very impressive, but like when we look at what it could have been, right? it's just, oh. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, move on. We're going to go to 1936. I mean, that's probably before, uh, any of our viewers were even born, <laughs> but, uh, we're going to Jesse Owens. So this is 1936 Berlin Olympics, uh, Berlin as in Germany. Jesse Owens, a black man, not only faces the obstacles of the Olympics and his events, but also the pressure of Hitler's Aryan Union and, 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 and Nazis and supremacy and everything that was going on in the world at that time. Um, you know, and I, Owens wasn't even sure that he was going to go. Um, the NAACP was all over him, giving him a hard time about it. Um, he was being chastised by writers in the country and all sorts of things, but his moral stance was like, 
I have a chance to, you know, shove it to Hitler. So, so I'm going to do that, you know? Um, so, so he ends up going and he wins four gold medals. He wins uh, the 100 and the 200 meter races, the four man relay and the long jump. Um, and that was more medals than anyone had won um, at that Olympics. And um, it was a, uh, four golds in one Olympics was a record all the way until 1984 uh, when Carl Lewis came around. So that lasted, um, what, 50 years, pretty much. Uh, the, the political pressure that, that he was under was greater than anyone in any Olympics, in my opinion. Um, it was documented that Hitler was annoyed with Owens. Um, he refused to shake his hand at the medal ceremony. He even, Hitler even left uh, the, the, the stadium or the arena um, because this was supposed to be the show for the Nazis to show their dominance to the world. And, and the show was stolen by, by Jesse Owens. Um, so, I mean, things were really bad for him over there. It wasn't much better when he came back to America. Um, Roosevelt was president at the time. Didn't even invite him to the White House. Didn't send him a message saying, hey, congratulations, way to stick it to Hitler or anything like that. Um, and you know, he, he couldn't even really get a job when he came back. He, he was working, uh, I believe like a gas station or something, uh, you know, just to get by. Um, it wasn't until a little later on that, you know, he, his notoriety took off a lot more. He was able to do a few things, but, um, ESPN ranks Owens as the sixth greatest American athlete. And, uh, U.S. track and field now gives out the Jesse Owens award to the best, track and field person of the year. So that, that's pretty big. Um, and, you know, his record for gold medals in front of the world in the face of Hitler, it's considered like the precursor and paving the way for Jackie Robinson in baseball and, and the civil rights movement. So just um, an amazing amount of pressure on this man. And he was able to, to just do some wonderful things for the world, in my opinion. Um, so, uh, Tessa, was there more pressure on Jesse Owens than any athlete you could think of in history? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I, again, like I, 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 I can't imagine, right? Like as a white woman, like where I am now. And even when I think about all of the women before me who made my opportunity in rowing happen and like how easy my life was compared to them and the past two athletes we talked about. Um, they didn't, I don't think they really had this in the same way, right? You can't, you can't separate as much as we all want to and wish that the Olympics were separated from what's happening in the world and the political pressures. It's not, even though that's kind of a lot of the point, it's about bringing the world together. Uh, he's in, it's just incredible what he did. And I also, I imagine, you know, the, the peer pressure that he had to deal with, right? Like he's going to a country where he's hated by Hitler and those who follow him. And he's also not getting the support he deserves from America. So he's really out there on his own. Um, and then he gets four medals, like talk about a feat. So yeah, I'm, I'm wildly impressed. I'm pretty sure I wrote a paper about him in college. Like it's just an impressive, it's an impressive story. And it's an impressive amount of determination that like, when we think about other times, like, I don't know, miracle, like, 
that as an example, that was still a team, right? That was a bunch of people together. So, but yeah. Kevin has, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, just so impressive. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Kevin has, uh, has Usain Bolt surpassed Owens as maybe the most known runner of all time at this point? Um, I don't want to downplay what Owens did. I mean, by all means, I mean, he's over in Berlin when uh, Hitler and the Nazi regime were, you know, at, at their peak. Um, and to go in under that, that kind of pressure and, and win four, four gold medals, I mean, that is impressive. I will say, <clears throat> would we still possibly be having this conversation if he didn't race that fourth one? Because um, he actually wasn't supposed to run in that race. Uh, the only reason why he got that fourth gold medal is because the two Jewish American runners were pulled from the team because the United States uh, Olympic president and and some of the track coaches and everything kind of bowed down to uh, Hitler's regime and the pressure that they were given to pull all Jewish runners. Um, so he actually wasn't supposed to run that race. But um, Bolt, I mean, Bolt has had a far greater career, but also was at a different time. Um, do I think that Bolt would beat Owens in a race? I do think he would. Um, it's been proven that Bolt's faster than Owens, um, but it's also a different time period where he's had better training, more, you know, supplements and whatnot and et cetera. Um, but as far as being most famous now, um, I do, I do think that Bolt has, has passed him as being, you know, the most famous runner. Okay. Let's go to 1912. Jim Thorpe. All right, Jim Thorpe. Now, Jim Thorpe's got a, sort of a similar story to Jesse Owens as far as he was a Native American, and he had a tough time um, growing up uh, in the United States. He, he was first started off in, uh, in Oklahoma, and, and as a young child, he, looked, he lost his twin brother and he lost his mother. Um, his father didn't really know what to do with him, so at, in this time, we're talking about the, the early 1900s, um, they sent him to what was called an Indian school and um, in Pennsylvania. And so while he's there, he happens to be walking past um, a, a bunch of college uh, students who are, are attempting the high jump and they're struggling trying to get over this jump. Well, Jesse, or um, I'm sorry, Jim Thorpe walks right over and jumps over this, this high jump, uh, impressing everybody that was there that witnessed it. And also who happened to be there was the legendary coach Pop Warner. So Pop Warner walks over there and says, you know, son, let me see you do that again. And, and, he, and he clears it with ease. So from that point on, Pop Warner takes, takes him under his wing and he throws every sport he can at him, football, baseball, lacrosse, even some rowing, uh, everything he can do, uh, you know, everything he could throw at him to see what Jim Thorpe, you know, can do. And Jim Thorpe's able to excel at all of these uh, sports. So then that leads us up to 1912, the Olympics in Stockholm, Sweden. Um, Jim Thorpe, he competes in 17 events in these games, which is more than anybody's ever done. So we have the pentathlon, which is a five-sport uh, competition, um, a five-event competition. So he wins four out of the five events in the pentathlon. And the only one that he didn't, that he didn't finish first in was the javelin, and he actually finished third in that. And the reason why he didn't win the javelin was because he went early on in the competition and he didn't know that you were allowed to have a run up first. So he threw the javelin standing stationary further than all but two of the contestants in that event, which is just amazing. So he wins the gold medal as a pent in the pentathlon. 
Then in the decathlon, he sets the world record for the 1500 meters. He sets the world record for, with eight, uh, 8,412 points in the, in the decathlon, winning the gold medal. That record stands for 20 years. But the most impressive part of, of Jim Thorpe's decathlon happened on day two when it was about 10 minutes before he had to run the 110-meter uh, hurdles. And he's frantically looking around trying to find his shoes, and he can't find them. Somebody stole them, or, or he's not sure what, but somehow he can't find his shoes anywhere. So frantically, he runs out, and he goes to a garbage can, and there just happens to be two shoes in the garbage can. And one of them happens to be his size, and the other one's a couple sizes bigger, so he's got to put a couple socks on in order to get it to fit. And with these you know, mismatched shoes – he goes out and, and he competes and, and he wins the the um, uh, 110 meter hurdles and he, and the um, and, and the high jump, which is a, just a tremendous feat. So in total, he wins eight out of 15 events in the decathlon and pentathlon. So after it's all said and done, the King of Sweden he proclaims uh, Jim Thorpe as the greatest athlete in the world, and later on. Um, several document, uh, several uh, publications, they called him the greatest athlete of the entire 20th century. So Jim Thorpe, just, uh, just a, a, a mammoth in sports history, and that 1912 Olympics is really what put him um, out in everybody's minds uh, you know, as, as just this amazing athlete. Tessa, I'm sure you've done, done a little research. Should he even be on our list? Oh, absolutely. Oh. I think this amateur thing, well, okay, so I do think he should be on the list for a lot of reasons. One, everybody loves a love story. Like, part of why he went to the Olympics was to impress his father-in-law and be like, I am good enough to marry your daughter, which I love. <laughs> um, all of the people that you guys put on this list, the four athletes, they also all faced a lot of adversity, and they still were incredible athletes. I think what I meant when I said about the amateurism rule was that he had played some minor league baseball, so they had stripped all of his medals, and then they were later given back to him in the 1980s. But um, from what I understand, you know, and this is like also a sadly an American story, I don't think white athletes were stripped from their medals and they had similar stories. So I think, you know, once again, that's a, that's something we have to take into account, but that's incredible. Right. And, you know, that was a good point about Usain Bolt earlier. He is faster than Owens because of how the world progresses. Right. So I do, I wonder what we would be looking at, you know, cause athletes are so specialized now if there was like a Jim Thorpe equivalent that showed up. But uh, yeah, no, it's a very, a very cool story and also a wildly impressive athlete. Like he played all those sports. I'm good at maybe rowing, right? Like I can't throw a basketball to save my life. So it's quite impressive. Right. And you brought up the minor league uh, baseball thing. You know, they did take his medals away from it. It was considered cheating uh, at that time. So kind of take that with a grain of salt, uh, you know, with your feelings on it. But obviously maybe one of the, as Brian said, he made the list of the greatest athlete of all time in several publications. Um, you know, obviously none of us were old enough to, to catch what he was doing, but uh, if he's still known today. That's over a hundred years later. That's pretty impressive. So um, before we go into our vote, let's hit our honorable mentions up. I'm going to start with mine. 
Um, Vitaly Sherbo, 1999 Barcelona Olympics. This guy, um, the gymnast, won six out of eight gold medals. Uh, pommel horse, rings, vault, parallel bars, all around, and team medal. He's the first person to win four medals in one day and uh, six medals in the Olympics. First person to win six medals in the Olympics. So, Kevin, who's yours? Uh, someone that we talked about a little bit ago, uh, Usain Bolt. I mean, how could he not be at least an honorable mention? I mean, he's got eight gold medals in the Olympics. Uh, one of his most notable, you know, was the 2008 Olympics uh, when he won the 100 meter and 200 meter. Um, and he actually uh, broke, uh, I believe it was what, Johnson, Michael Johnson's uh, record. And Johnson said that he didn't, he didn't think that uh, for a minute that uh, Bolt was going to lose, but he thought that his record would still stand at 19.32 seconds. And... Um, yeah, no, Bolt beat it. And, um, I mean, the man, he's won championships, medals, just like Phelps has in multiple different competitions. He has to be at least an honorable mention. Um, he could have pro probably been, you know, on our on this list himself as well. Alyssa? Uh, well, we have uh, Carl Lewis in the 1984 Olympics. Uh, he was a very dominant sprinter and long jumper. He won four gold medals. Um, one in the, the long jump, uh, which was over 28 feet. Um, he won, uh, he placed a world record uh, in the 100 uh, meter, 9.9 .9 seconds, which is unbelievable. Um, set an Olympic gold record uh, for the 200 meter in 19.8 seconds. And then uh, the, the four person 100 meter, uh, he was the anchor and he took it home in 8.94 seconds. Um, and actually, in the 100 meter um, at the finish line, they clocked him at 28 miles per hour, and he won by eight feet. That is a, that's an incredible length uh, in these types of races. Um, it was the biggest margin in Olympic history. Um, and he also did this. Um, he, he had a very known strong stance against uh, steroids. And actually, with the 100 meter, um, the guy who originally won it, uh, not by much, by the way, um, but actually got disqualified for uh, being found out uh, to be taking steroids. So 28 yeah. miles per hour is like a cheetah. Jeez. I, I know. That's I can't even, I, I, I can barely run half that. Not even. <laughs> Brian, who you got? I got uh, Jackie Joyner Kersey. I mean, she's got to be mentioned. I, actually, I, <laughs> I believe Tessa mentioned her earlier. 1988 Olympics, she was rolling into that trying, she was not only trying to compete against the other racers, but she was trying to compete against her own records. She wanted to break her own world records. Uh, so the heptathlon, um, she she was able to set a new world record in long jump. Going into the final day, she's 97 points behind uh, her record. So she had to get a good showing in the 800 meters. Um, she was able to take fifth and ended up just five seconds inside the time that she needed. So she set the world record. It's still a world record. And she did all this with a disability because uh, she has uh, severe asthma. So she overcame uh, plenty of adversity along the way. Okay. All right. Let, let's get our vote going here. Um, Brian, you're in my top left. Can't pick your own. Who are you taking? Well, I mean, I think any any time you got somebody that can that can stick it to Hitler, uh, that that's the guy I'm going to go with. So I'm going to go with Jesse Owens on this one. So uh, you know, he it was it was so much bigger than just him. You know, he was it, this was something that was, you know, Hitler was on a roll over there in Germany, and this was something that kind of, uh, you know, uh, it kind of 
set him back a little bit. So, <laughs> Kevin, that was awesome. Because of that, I'm taking Owens or I'm taking Phelps. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I love Kurt Angle because I'm a huge WWE fan, but um, I mean, Phelps just. He dominated the sport, so I'm going to make that quick. Again, an easy pick. Kevin, go ahead. He's on a Wheaties box, too. But anyways, since I can't pick my own, because I, honestly, I do feel Phelps uh, Phelps should be you know, the winner on this one. But um, I'm going to go with uh, Jesse Owens as well, um, just because of, you know, the same reason what Brian gave, because um, of the pressure with you know, going in there with the Hitler regime. Um, I mean, it was you know, pretty remarkable. Alyssa? Oh, uh, Jesse Owens all the way. Um, I mean, you know, just the adversity that he faced. And I, I can imagine, I mean, I'm kind of trying to put myself in his shoes, and I would probably be fearing for my life as well. Um, I mean, it's not, you know, security certainly, I'm sure, wasn't what it was then as it is now. Um, you know, you can't walk down the street without, you know, cops being around. So, I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, what kind of fears he was had to overcome as well just to do that. So it definitely Jesse Owens all the way. Tessa? Oh, I'm so torn. Um, I do want to shout out Jackie. Look, Michael Phelps, I, like, it's hot. I love the Wheaties box. Uh, I, it's so hard because his performance was so incredible. Uh, I, I honest, I'm going to go with Jim Thorpe. I... Would I, look? We're spanning almost a hundred years here. I would love to see like the 2008 version of him. I also think the adversity that he faced was so <laughs> immense as a Native American and also an all-around athlete. I just and such an incredible story. Um, so I'm gonna. <laughs> I know it's I know it's Jesse Owens, who I also really I'm glad he's winning, but I'm gonna throw it to Jim. Well, and just to recap, that's one vote for Phelps, one for Thorpe, and three sticking it to Hitler. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's move on to our American sport performance. And uh, I'm first up, and I'm representing Annika Sorenstam. So, we're going March 16th, 2001 at Moon Valley Country Club, the first ever round of 59. Any first ever under 60 round by a woman was shot by Annika shooting a 59. She started on the back nine and made eight consecutive birdies and she birdied 12 of her first 13 holes. And she finished with 13 birdies, which was a record. Um, and 13 under par for the round, that, that was a record. And the minus 27 she shot for the tournament, that was a record. So just all around dominance, uh, greater than any woman has ever done in golf period. So 12 people have shot below 60, but she's the only female. And the men's record is 58. So she was only one off that. Um, not only is she considered like the greatest woman golfer of all time, but she's just considered one of the greatest golfers of all time, men, men or women. Um, it, it just doesn't matter. She's that good. Um, she's got 10 majors. And if you include an international play, she has 162 wins. That's an insane number. She's still the all-time women's moneymaker, despite having 150 less events played than the number two person. She's an NCA champion, eight-time player of the year, leads the LPGA in wins, majors, 
Um, she's the first woman to, that competed in a men's match since 1945. Um, and she's received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And she's on the, the final selection committee for the Golf Hall of Fame. So that should tell you how much, um, not just the LPGA, but the PGA thinks of her that, that you know, she is the one who decides who's going into the Golf Hall of Fame. So just uh, she's a really, obviously great golfer, but um, she's a great person too. If you, if, you, if, you, if you Google her and look her up, she's just done a lot for uh, society as a whole. But um, that day shooting a 59, gosh, I shoot like 100 if I'm lucky. So <laughs> that's, that's pretty darn good. Um, switch over to my American side here. So, uh, Alyssa, do you, do you feel she could have competed against the men? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I know that, you know, there might be some, um, I did some reading up on, uh, you know, uh, distance versus accuracy. And like, if you look at, say, back in 2003, she averaged 272 yards, um, but she was hitting 80% on the fairway, which is incredible. Um, you compare it to like Tiger, who is, you know, one of the, the goats of, uh, of golf, um, best in the world. He averaged 299 yards, only 62% accuracy. Phil Mickelson with, um, averaged 306 yards, 48% uh, accuracy. I mean, it, it really depends on what, you know, where you're reading, you know, whether it's, you know, golf.com or, or whatever. But a lot of them say that the, um, the distance uh, is more important than the accuracy. But I mean, just, just looking at, you know, uh, like what you said too, you know, that, that 59 is just incredible. Um, and just uh, the number of birdies she had. I mean, I, I think in her case, even though she wasn't quite hitting the, the same distance uh, in her drives, you know, I, I don't know. I think the accuracy would have played a part. I think she, she definitely put up a good competition with them. I'd love to see her be able to do it. I would love to shoot more accurate. Uh, I, I don't who cares yeah, about distance. I just want to like not yeah. be in the rough or the, you know, yeah. twenty feet out of bounds in the woods. You know, I always get that yeah. ricochet off the tree that comes back and bounce. You know, or something like that. But uh, <laughs> Tessa, let me let me ask you: as a female athlete, um, you know, do you feel that there's more pressure on Annika? not only going for a women's record, but like being so close to the men's record, do you feel like there's just, there was more pressure than on her than there would have been like on a male? It's, I think it's a different kind of pressure in golf. And I don't know um, for sure. I've, I've only golfed a couple times and I, it takes so much focus, which I think is the part when I like watched her recap and did her, inter like watched her interviews. Like, I wonder what's going on in her brain. Like she must've trained that focus so hard. I think, you know, golf is, it has a reputation sometimes similar to rowing of sort of like an old man white sport um, that it's like constantly pushing against. And she's just so impressive in like being like, here I am. And the golf community has accepted her, which is also that much cooler. So I do think it's a different, it's a different type of proving herself. And it's just, she's just incredible. Like that's it. She's keeping up with the boys. That's awesome. And <laughs> genetically awesome. So let's move on to Gail Sayers. All right, Gail Sayers. So, Gail Sayers, six touchdowns in a single game. Uh, back in December 12, 1965, at Wrigley Field, made the Bears against the Niners. And, and the Niners are a pretty good team, seven and six. 
But the one thing that stands out about this game to begin with was it had very muddy conditions. Uh, the field was very torn up, and players were sliding all over the place. But there was one guy who was not sliding all over the place, and that was Gail Sayers. And, I mean, they were all wearing the same cleats. So we go to the first quarter, touchdown number one, an 80-yard receiving TD for Gail Sayers. Second quarter, he gets touchdown number two and number three, a 21-yard rushing TD, a seven-yard rushing TD. In the third quarter, he gets touchdown number four and touchdown number five, a 50-yard rushing TD and a one-yard rushing TD. And then in the fourth quarter, he gets touchdown number six, an 85-yard punt return for a touchdown. So he scores an all he scores a touchdown in all four quarters, and he scores a touchdown three different ways: receiving, rushing, and in the return game. So this this one, one other guy was able to do this before Dub Jones in 1951. But the difference is is that Gale Sayers was a rookie, and this was only the 13th game of his career that he was able to achieve this. And it's also a record for 36 points scored in a game as well. Um, and this now is we've now been. Um, 55 years of, of the NFL, and no one has been able to duplicate this. So some guys have gotten close, some guys have gotten five, but no one's ever gotten six. Uh, so just a, just a tremendous feat and, and something that we, we may never see again. Kevin, I, I see you got a, a Jets jersey on there. They could certainly use a player like Gail Sayers right now, but uh, <laughs> I digress. Is, is, this the, uh, is this the greatest football performance of all time? Um. Uh, don't hate me, Brian. <laughs> um, I don't think it's the greatest performance. Is it one of the greatest? By all means, yeah. I mean, it is. He had over 300-some yards total between rushing, receiving, and punt returns. Like, he had 134 yards on his punt returns. Um, but if you go actual stat-wise, like, he had 113 yards rushing. He only had 89 yards receiving. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that those are – pretty good numbers and he had the six touchdowns but stat wise I mean 113 yards I mean that's pretty regularly done by uh running backs and wide receivers all the time and 89 yards um I mean to get six touchdowns I mean that yeah that that is awesome but I mean there's just there's so many other performances out there you have quarterbacks throwing for 500 almost 600 yards with five TD passes um you know going up against crazy defenses I mean his can we say that the conditions played a, a role in, in how he was able to score that many touchdowns? I mean, you said it yourself, 49, everyone was slipping around. Like, it's going to be hard to tackle somebody when they're covered in mud and everyone's slipping around. I mean, to say it was the greatest in NFL, I, I can't say that. But was it one of the greatest by a running back? Yes, especially because he was a rookie. You know, I wasn't going to say anything anything on this one, but I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in 15 seconds because uh, Kevin, I, I, I got to disagree with you. Sayers went against defenses that were far superior than defenses today because defenses back then were not worried about passing; they worried about one thing: it was running. So he he had it much harder than guys throwing for 500 yards today when there's like zero. You know, defenders can't do anything, you know, with pass interference. There is, so, uh, there's a quarterback that threw for 554 yards and five touchdowns in like 1951. I'm sure it's happened like once here and there. It doesn't happen every week like it does now. But 
Anyway, I'm sorry. God, Tessa, <laughs> go ahead and your I, two cents in. <laughs> this is great. I love hearing about this. I don't know a lot about football. I mean, I support my Patriots as a good New England girl, um, New England woman. Uh, I do, I do what the first thing I thought about this was the adversity that weather plays, right? Like we don't see it in as many sports anymore. We're seeing more domed stadiums. Um, I think about it with rowing. I think about it, you know, and I'm watching this guy and I think maybe it is because he's young. He's sort of like, he's not, he's not worried the same way. I think if you don't know what's expected of you, that also means that you can push yourself that much further. So I, I think this is awesome. I love, I love an athlete that can be like, I am, I am going to ignore this weather. I am going to thrive. Um, and that's cool. But I don't actually know the statistics that well. So um, I'm just going to, but I'm impressed. <laughs> All right, let's move on to Secretariat. So Secretariat was um, uh, the first Triple Crown winner in 25 years back in 1973. Now, um, like, I mean, the Triple Crown, you have the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes. Um, there are three very long races um, in uh, a short time period of five weeks. Um, and that, the, that last race, the Belmont Stakes, has been called the test of the champion. Now, if you look back at, like, the first horse that ever won um, the Triple Crown was back in 1919. Um, and there's, um, he was the ninth to win. There's only been 13 total that have won that. Okay. So it's, it's pretty rare. Um, and, and now these races are all done with three-year-old thoroughbreds. Now, um, first of all, like he won horse of the year at age two and three, which is actually very rare. And when I was researching, um, the, these horses, I mean, they're not even fully, uh, developed uh, in their musculoskeletal system yet. Um, at that age, they're still considered very young. Um, so for him to be able to uh, put his body through this kind of uh, physical toll and not uh, suffer any injuries is amazing. Um, you know, during his career, he's won five Eclipse Awards. He was uh, nominated to the National Museum of uh, Racing and Hall of Fame in 1974 as well. Um, he is uh, on the list of the top 100 U.S. racehorses of the 20th century. Um, he's actually second only to Man of War, who was actually the first horse to win Triple Crown back in 1919. Um, gosh, and when he was age two, uh, like his, his debut race, he actually placed fourth, but then he won his next seven races. Um, I think it's uh, pretty uh, impressive just what, what he was able to do. And I, and when um, you know, I was asked to 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 talk about this horse, I really I really had no idea what what went into this racing and how impressive it really is that he um, you know got that triple crown and, and was uh, so successful. I mean, it's 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 uh, pretty amazing. Brian, he uh, secretary. I don't want to be he or she, but I forget. <laughs> Set the record at, at all three of the, is he? That's what I thought. Yeah. Set the record at all three of those tracks that year. I mean, are we talking, is this the greatest horse of all time? I, I mean, I think it's a judgment call. I mean, you, I, I wouldn't argue anybody that said he's the greatest, but my personal opinion, I would give it to Man of War because uh, Man of War is the first Triple Crown winner. Mm -hmm. He only had one career loss the, the entire time that he competed. And it was controversial because they had a last-minute change. The, the guy who uh, who ran the gate 
uh, last minute change and, and somebody else had to run it and he didn't really know what he was doing. And it kind of like messed, messed up, um, uh, man of war. He got a, he got a, a slow start and, and ended up second place. So he, he probably would have won that race too. He probably would have gone down as the only undefeated horse. So I, I, I give man of war the edge, but like, I mean, like what Alyssa said there, I mean, secretary had a very, very impressive career. And it's almost like one, a one B for me. Impressive career. And, and had the, I say the biggest competition took on Sea Biscuit, beat Sea Biscuit. But Tessa, sh should we even consider a horse? No, the greatest athletic performance. <laughs> <laughs> I no, I think it's fascinating. I think this is a, the racing, the horse racing world is a fascinating thing that I have just sort of started uh, getting into because I really miss racing, and there isn't the same amount of racing with COVID. Um, but I do think I, oh, I, it's hard, right? Like you're entering, you're entering an interesting realm of like, is esports and like a thing? You know, it is a thing, but is it the same thing as an athletic achievement? I think what I what I think about here is the horse's choice in the matter, right? Part of like athletes, and it was interesting hearing you speak about like the the genetic makeup in a horse's mind, and it's just like it. I don't know. I honestly don't know how I feel about it. And I will continue to think about it as an athletic performance for a long time to go. I'd be interested then to hear what you think of my choice for honorable mention in a little bit. But uh, Oh, the yes. <laughs> not a horse, but uh, you might not consider it a sport either. But let's move on to Marielle Lemieux. Yeah, number 66. Representing. Oh, Kevin's just pulling out everything today. <laughs> Props. Props. That's what gets you the win. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, come on. You all know Mario Lemieux. We, we had one of our previous dates between him and Gretzky, and Lemieux should have came up on top. But, um, you know, one of the greatest hockey players to ever play the game, hands down. So we go down to April 25th, 1989. Okay, Mario Lemieux put on arguably one of the best – Offensive performances in the history of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And they say that the Stanley Cup is one of the hardest trophies to win. And it definitely is. Uh, Lemieux ties, ties the playoff records by scoring five goals and finishing with a total of eight points in that game against one of their biggest rivals, the Philadelphia Flyers. His performance powered the Penguins to win 10-7 to um, in Game 5 of the Patrick Division Final at the Civic uh, Arena. Uh, in Pittsburgh. It was a big game at the time. The series was tied 2-2 and it gave us the lead to try and, and end up winning that, that uh, series to go on to the finals, but unfortunately, you know, Philadelphia came out on top uh, going into game seven, but Lemieux scores three goals in the first six minutes and 55 seconds of that game. That set a playoff record for the fastest three goals uh, to the start of a game. He scored his fourth goal later in the first period, tying the mark for the most goals in a period and matches the record for goals in a playoff game once he scores the fifth one at the end of the third period. He also put up three assists in the second period. His eight points tie the single-game playoff record uh, that was set by Patrick Sundstrom of the New Jersey Devils um, the year prior in 1988. Um, his five goals match the mark set by Maurice, uh, Maurice Richard, who, you know, the, the trophy for scoring leader is named after that player. Um, Lemieux has... Uh, the record for the most career eight-point games. He actually has three. Gretzky only has two. All three of his eight-point games came in that same season, 
um, as that playoff game where he scored the eight points. Um, playoffs are a completely di- different atmosphere. For him to put up eight points in a playoff game, we all know, you know, playoff games, it's the intensity is so much higher. Uh, you know, uh, tensions are higher. People are, are really gunning for you. They're going after your, your best players. You know, later, a couple years later, you know, he got swiped at on, on the wrist uh, against the Rangers. Um, Adam Graves took that swing, broke his wrist. And people headhunt the superstars in the playoffs. And he put up eight points in a playoff game <clears throat> to, to help the, the Penguins win that game. Um, you know, he, he was quoted saying after that game, I've had a, a lot of great uh, games in his career, uh, but under the, uh, that type of pressure like that, this was a key game for the team. He, he said that he thinks that this game was one of his best, even though it wasn't his only eight-point game. But this one, he said that he thinks was one of his best, eight points in a playoff game. Well, 16 players have scored eight points in a game. Um, you know, Mario has done it a couple times. Um, now, his wasn't a playoff game. It has been done once before in a playoff game. Patrick Sundstrom, right. yeah, with, with the Devils in 88. So it has been done before. Granted, uh, Sundstrom didn't have five goals. He had, um, I think, three goals and five assists or something. So yeah. burst it or whatever. So uh, statistically, Lemuse is better. But eight points has been done before. Tessa, I, I, I've actually seen that you've played some some hockey. So, what, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, no, I, I grew up playing hockey. Uh, so did my brother. Um, yeah, I, look, I love Mario Mew. I grew up watching him. I think he's fantastic. I think it's an incredible performance. Uh, I really don't know what else to say. Like, there's a reason why you guys had an episode on Lemieux versus Gretzky, right? Like, it's I'm not surprised he's on this list because he's legit. <laughs> totally <laughs> legit. All right. Before we vote, let's hit up our honorable mentions. Um, Brian, go ahead. Well, I got the Will Chamberlain 100-point game. Uh, this is back in 1962, uh, Philadelphia Warriors against the New York Knicks. Uh, the previous record was 78 points, which, which was also Will. Um, and the closest sense was Kobe Bryant in 2006 with 81 points. Uh, back, you, you know, back in 1962, there was no three-point shots. And, and Wilt was known for not – he didn't really like to dunk. So these were all hook shots and, and free throws and, and, and you know, di- different kind of shots rather than, you know, layups. You know, and, and so um, this was just very impressive. And nobody's really even ever sniffed this in, in almost 60 years now. Kevin? So, uh, yeah, I got Jim Furyk. Um, uh, you had mentioned uh, when we were talking about Sorenstam about um, she shot a 59 and only one person shot a 58. Well, that was Jim Furyk, August 2016. He shot 58 uh, in the final round of the Travelers uh, Championship held at TPC River Highlands in Connecticut. Uh, it ended up being a minus 12 on the round because that course uh, was only a par 70, not a par 72 like uh, most courses. But uh, the round set a new uh, tour record. Um, initially, uh, he almost didn't even make it to the finals. He shot a 73 in the first round. Um, then he had to shoot a 66 in the second round to even make the cut. Uh, which he did shoot a 66 on the dot. Uh, and then he shot two over 72 uh, in the third round. Um, and then he went into the fourth and final round. Um, he was actually in 70th place out of 73 players uh, that made the cut to go to the finals, 16 strokes behind the leader. And then he came out shooting 12 under par, which jumped him from 70th place uh, to a tie for fifth place, uh, only three shots behind uh, the leader. 
Um, and despite the, you know, that history making round, the round actually almost didn't count because uh, his playing partner incorrectly marked him down uh, for a birdie on one of the holes that he didn't have a birdie. Uh, but thankfully, they caught the mistake before turning the scorecard. Also, this historic uh, round wouldn't have even counted. We didn't even be talking about it. Okay. Alyssa. Oh, I had to mention Madison Bumgarner. He is the uh, pitcher in the 2014 World Series. He played for San Fran Giants, um, and he helped lead his team to beat the Kansas City Royals in that game, uh, in that series. Um, So he pitched, okay, game one, he pitches seven innings. They win. Game five, he pitches a shutout. They win that game. And then only two days rest. Okay, which is not much, as we all know, when it comes to uh, pitching. Um, comes back for game seven and helps clinch the whole thing um, with a save. Um, the, the final five rounds was actually a shutout um, to the Royals on, on only uh, two hits. Um, New York Times called it the performance for the ages. Um, and this is an amazing stat. He only, In 21 innings, he only had one run against. Um, and, and just that, that season alone, he pitched 270 innings prior to that. So I thought that was uh, pretty impressive. So I got Bobby Fischer, um, eight-time U.S. chess champion. So 1963, he goes 11-0 at the U.S. chess championships. Only perfect score in history of the tournament. His longest match was 62 moves. So think about this. An average player like myself and Kevin, we've been in chess tournaments, an average player's game is 60 moves. So playing against the best in the world, he dominated them in less than average amount of moves. 11-0, never done before. Hmm. A lot of people don't consider chess a sport, but it works out the greatest muscle of all, the mind. So. <laughs> yeah, no, okay. <laughs> Wildly impressive. Thank you. Thank but you. athletic performance. Hey, okay. <laughs> I athletic perf- body and mind. I'm just I. That, that, yeah, that's that's why it was my honorable mention, not my uh, <laughs> my, my overall. So let's uh, let let's let's take our vote. Um, Alyssa, why don't you go first? Who are you voting for? Uh, you know, I, I was I I almost I really wanted to pick Annika. I mean, that was so impressive. Uh, just. What? There you are, Kevin. You know, I actually am going to go with Lemieux, by the way, but I don't want to take anything away from Annika because I think her, her performance was just uh, absolutely uh, had an amazing career. And uh, like I said, I'd love to see her play against uh, uh, the, the men today. But uh, I mean, I don't know, just Lemieux, I mean, just knowing the type of uh, player he was, um, you know, on the ice and what kind of person he was off the ice. And I mean, that, I mean, and just having the the five goals in that that playoff game, you know, I haven't watched as much hockey as you guys, but I mean, I know that some games I'm like, is anyone ever going to score? You know, and then you come out with someone like Lemieux with everyone gunning for him and just to score as much as he did and to really uh, take it home for his team. And then the, the the three goals in six minutes is just amazing. I mean, I I I would love I, I love watching uh, that game, Kevin. Um, yeah. Um, I, I I can't go for the horse. Uh, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I love the secretary. I love the movie. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure he was an underdog horse. I think he, if I'm not mistaken, he's a little bit smaller than 
than the competition, if I remember correctly. But uh, I'm gonna have to go. Even though I, I kind of knocked Sayers, I'm gonna have to go with Sayers. I mean, that, that it was impressive to get six touchdowns, um, and as a rookie, and I know he had a great season that year too. Um, but Mike Ditka even said that was possibly one of the single greatest games uh, that he's ever seen. I mean, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he was a tight end on the team at that time too. Um, Mike Ditka was, but so I'm gonna have to go with Sayers. Ryan, ah, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go different here. I'm gonna go with Annika. Um, you know, when I look at when I look at the you know Secretariat, you know somebody topped her. When I looked at uh, when I topped him, whenever I look at um, uh, Lemieux, I mean uh, several people got eight points in the game. So I'm gonna go Annika on this one because she did something that no other woman ever did. I I wish I could go Annika, but I can't. She was my pick. Um, and I'm really going to throw a wrinkle into this one because he's going for the horse. <laughs> I am going for the horse. Here's why. Um, six touchdowns have been scored once before. Eight points has been scored in a playoff game once before. Now, yes, the triple crown has been won before, but never was the record set at all three tracks mm-hmm. during the triple crown. So that's just an amazing feat. Horse or not, this is a sports show. It's a sport. Race, horse racing is a sport, so I'm I'm taking secretary because I, I think that's just something we'll never ever see again, ever. So Tessa, pressure on you. Whew. Well, I'm I'm not going with the horse, as impressive as it may be. Um, so I, look, to be fair though, I am going to go with what I think is the mind and body here, and go with Annika as well. Like talk about the focus necessary. It's just wildly impressive. So, what a good day for me! I had Owens and Annika. Who's <laughs> the winner? You and, and I find it convenient that you you take the person that had the Nazi regime against them, and you had the only female, which kind of <laughs> gives them a step up already over the other people. You find it convenient, yet I picked last out of the list. So oh, that's true. You did. <laughs> so you all had a chance to take the the, the Nazi. Uh, <laughs> So let, let's move into our Q&A um, with Tessa and, you know, talk about her career here and, and a little bit about her life. Um, we'll go ladies first. Alyssa, go ahead. You get oh, first wonderful. question. Okay. So, well, I want to know, are you training for the next Olympics? And oh, if no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Does COVID play a part in that? Because I was going to ask, how, did, how is that affecting that? Because I'm sure that. Yeah, no, that's really, that's actually, that's a really interesting question. Um, I, I said it like that because I, I am, I, I think about how fit I am now compared to how fit I was then. Um, let me talk a little, I know that we've already been talking for a while, but let me talk a little bit about training and sort of what it looks like as a female athlete at the train, the U.S. Training Center. Uh it is, it is like a full-time gig, right? So, and you live over in Princeton, New Jersey for the majority of the year. And then you go to um, California for three months when you can't train the same way in um, the mid-Atlantic. So, no, I always knew I was going to, and it's, you sort of, you wake up, you go to a long practice, you come back. I napped. I was a big napper. Um, one of my teammates called me puppy because I like could fall asleep anywhere. Uh, and then, uh, you go to another training session. Uh, it's usually a row and a lift or just a row. And then you go home and you go to bed and that is your life. You can't, you you can maybe have sort of a part-time job, but even then you're, 
you're really, you're relying on, you know, U.S. Rowing and the National Rowing Foundation to support you. I lived with a host family. They're still really important to me today um, for all four years while I, three and a half years while I was training. And then as you start to make Olympic boats, you start to make some money and be able to support yourself. Uh, so that's sort of what the process is there. I always wanted the Women's Eight 2016. I think I was pretty upfront about that when I got there. I really liked big boats, even though we trained in all sorts of boats. Um, and whereas I definitely physically could have gone for another four years, I mentally and emotionally could not, <laughs> um, which is a, a hard concept to understand as an athlete. And I think sort of even the athletes that I worked with um, and were my teammates because, you know, injury is a huge, um, it is a huge barrier for a lot of people. And I was still in a pretty good space. But uh, no, I moved to Boston and I got married to my lovely husband. Uh, mm -hmm. I do have a lot of close friends who are still training. Uh, one of them was in my wedding. I've been talking to her. Talk about the hit that COVID was to all of those people who have literally put their lives. I don't want to say on hold because it's a lifestyle you, you choose, but it's definitely an all-encompassing lifestyle. And it's all-encompassing to yourself, but also your loved ones around you. So um, I really hope that we have an Olympics this summer and that they get that. So. I read that there was a, a, a breakout of COVID with the rowing team in August. So Yeah. yeah. So, yep. Um, a bunch of them got COVID. It was a, a definitely, uh, from what I hear from talking to my friends, it was a variation. A couple got very sick. A couple, like, lost their sense of smell and taste, and that was it. Um, you do sort of have to put a halt on training, uh, regardless of what symptoms you have to sort of make sure that you're taking care of your body. I think that was definitely sort of because COVID is so unknown. There are certain times where I think we've all trained through a head cold or some other kind of sickness, but I think this was one where it really shut down a lot of training. Okay. And, and feel free to answer as long as you want. This is a podcast. We can go as long as we want. I mean, Joe Rogan's is like four hours long, so I think we're all right here. But uh, Feel free to edit me out at any time. <laughs> no, no, don't worry about it. Um, so I, I, I wanted to ask you, I don't talk to a lot of professional rowers. So I was just wondering, like, uh, when, when, you, when you were in it and doing it, uh, did you use the full lung technique or, or the, the empty lung technique and, and why during your, your row? Mm, explain that a little to me. I haven't heard of that. Well, so with the full lung, you're breathing in as you go. And with the empty lung, you've, you've already let go of your air. So there, there's, there's actually two, two styles. So like, I was just wondering what, that, that's what they, they kind of taught us when I... No, I, I know what you're talking about. I have heard both. Uh, we definitely didn't focus as much on it because it was kind of, to some extent, however you could get the power out there, that is what you got. Um, I imagine... Yeah, I was breathing whenever. I think I was probably breathing in as I, as I drove to some extent. Uh, for sure. Uh, the drive, which is like the part where the oar is in the water. Right. And then the recovery is when you are, in theory, sort of relaxing a bit. But there's really no relaxing. Um, but yeah, no, I think it was interesting for me to go from the program, like, to get to the national team and sort of, there are some very precise things. And then there are things where as long as you can go hard and put down the scores, you're, you're, 
you know, you can't, you guys talk about statistics all the time. There's a certain amount where you can't fight the numbers, right? So. Kevin, go ahead. I, I'll tell you what, uh, I've done the uh, rowing machine at the gym, and after about 200 meters, I won't throw up, so I, I don't know how you, how you do it, but that's, uh, rowing's pretty tough, but um, no, just, what's the atmosphere like uh, in, when you were at the 2016 Olympics, like what was the atmosphere like in the Olympic Village, and, and what's that like, kind of like over there? Yeah, I, I was, I was, when you were talking about wrestling, I was like, oh, I kind of know the vomit feeling he was talking about. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so a lot of it is a blur. I, you know, each athlete is very different. I, I think I knew that I had to keep my mental game and my emotions in check while I was there and that my, I could trust my body very much to do what it needed to do. It was like me not getting in my own way. So the way I did that was I was definitely one of the more, conservative um athletes in terms of the sense that i went to dinner i went back to my room i napped you know i'd be like walking next to the u.s gymnast team and a couple of my teammates would be like really excited because they are so cool and very little compared to us <laughs> um and i just i would be like i can't right now you know like trading pins is a huge thing where you tr you bring a bunch of pins from your country and you trade them with other athletes and it's really cool but I couldn't do any of it until after race day. Cause I was just so, I was so in it, you know, it was like, it was just the only way I knew how to deal with it. Uh, and I remember sitting on at the start line, looking at the person in front of me. And this is what I tell athletes. Now you just do what the person in front of you does. That's all I have to do. Right. So that was like what I was doing when I was there. And then afterwards it was just amazing. Like the people in the people in Brazil were so excited to have us. They were so kind. Rio was a very accepting place. They, they were excited. We were excited. I went and saw beaches. I went and saw family. It's like they really, they really do so much. The atmosphere is so exciting. You meet such great people. Um, awesome. It's definitely carnival-esque. And I think part of that was Rio. So nice. Brian, go ahead. Well, we, we talked about some uh, Olympic heroes tonight. Um, I was wondering if there was a specific Olympic hero that you had, maybe someone that, that inspired you while you were competing. It, that is interesting. I took a lot of my inspiration from my own teammates, uh, typically. I think it was easier to grasp. I Again, we talk a lot about the mental game, which is part of why I'm sort of with this horse thing. It's just I'm like, what does that horse really get to choose? Uh, and I sort of like, I think... Ooh, he can he can choose just to stand there if he wants. That's true. <laughs> can he? Um, I think so. He can fuck him right so. off. That's a fair point. Yeah. Fair point. Um, I think in a, oh gosh, probably 2006, I, 2006, 2007, I started to know that I wanted to go to the Olympics and I only told my mom. Um, and a lot of it is just straight up genetics, right? Like we talk about this drive. A lot of people have drive. A lot of people have that intention and can make those decisions. But at some point, everybody at the Olympics, I think regardless of sport, is genetically gifted in some sort of way. Um, neither of my parents knew about rowing, really. So I don't think they were going in being like, we're going to have a rower. But uh, um, <laughs> there is a genetics aspect, right? Like I'm 6'1". I'm 185, 90 pounds. Like that's, that's a, that's a woman right there. So, um, but I think, you know, the way I dealt with it was I didn't watch the Olympics. I just zoned it out. 
because I knew how much it would hurt if I didn't make it. So I always prepared myself for not making it. And then when I did make it, it was a really bizarre mind shift and a bit of a, a switch. Uh, I think the, the intelligence and not intelligence, the like emotional and mental um, things that athletes do are so interesting to get through, you know, to make it to the end. And I just, I shut it all out. So, which was kind of bizarre. So I didn't really have those same Olympic role models. Like I knew who they were. Um, but when I thought of like, when I thought of who inspired me, they were athletes that I had in college. Uh, I think, you know, what the month before the Olympics, when things are really hard and you have to keep going, I thought about what would eighth grade Tessa say to me right now? She would tell me to suck it up. Like that would be the only option. Right. So, um, I think that's where I took my inspiration. Alyssa, go ahead. Uh, first of all, I just want to say how I, I think uh, rowing is, is very impressive. I've always been, um, I guess you could say, I've always been like an, uh, an upper body and shoulders kind of kind of woman. Like I'm always so impressed with women who have that kind of strength. So kudos to you for for, for being in the shape that you're in. Um, uh, I've tried to kayak, and that's that's about as far as I can go, and that's nothing. <laughs> um, but I, I actually saw that you uh, that you got uh, honored by the Red Sox and the Bruins. Um, oh my God! If any other teams kind of reached out to you, and what what was that like? It was so cool. Um, so okay, so here's that story. I love that they do this. By the way, I love that you know baseball. I think they do it all over, right? Like I think baseball teams often take their hometown Olympians there. So baseball was first. It happened like a week after. And I remember being like, I have never thrown a baseball, right? Like I have been rowing <laughs> focused. I played ice hockey growing up. Like, it's just like me throwing. And I was like really kind of nervous about it. Right. So, um, Hank, who was my boyfriend at the time, now husband, his mom hosts, uh, baseball players or has in York, Pennsylvania, actually. So, um, we've got some mid-Atlantic here and I like, I, we, we finished rowing. Sorry. I have something in my eye. Um, we finished rowing. We, we get back from the Olympics. I see my host family first who, you know, deserve to see me. They like really supported me through the whole time. And then, um, we go to York, Pennsylvania. That's like two hours away. And I'm like, guys, I need you to teach me how to throw a baseball like now. So, um, I still bounced it off the ground. Uh, but it was the greatest thing ever. It was like a lineup of all of the athletes. And then, um, it was just, it was so cool. And then, so by the time I didn't, the Pats invited us, but I couldn't go because I was helping, uh, my high school with a boathouse fundraiser. Cause like how cool they're getting a new boathouse. So, um, it was important to me that I participated in that because, um, you know, my high school is where I started rowing and it's really important. And uh, so I'm really glad I did that. And then by the time hockey came around, I was like, I knew to ask for extra tickets, right? I knew to be like, uh, I, I know you said I get one guest, but like my parents have been so supportive. Like, do you think they could come too? So my mom and dad came and I didn't tell them that we were going to be there to drop the puck. Uh, so uh, they are like rushing because they're late to everything. And, you know, they get there and it was very exciting. Uh, I shook hands with uh, Patrice Bergeron, which just blew my mind. Um, I don't, I still, ugh, still makes me like 
God, what a saint. Um, so uh, that was so cool. And I remember you're like up in the box. They really like take out all the measures. And my dad, and he met it as a joke, right? He's very supportive. Um, but he like tasked me. He's like, Tessa, this, is, this might be cooler than Rio. And I'm like, oh, dad, of course, you know, because he's just had all this food and like a, a beer and like having a great time. And I'm like, I'm glad you're having fun, dad. But it was, it was really cool. And it's like, you know, it's like, we, we all grew up watching our sports teams to some extent. So it was, it was really neat to, to do that. I had heard Secretariat was very upset that they didn't ask him to throw out the first pitch. So yeah, come on. <laughs> Kevin, go ahead. Um, so just kind of, um, I know a, a lot of uh, rowers actually come out of Ivy League schools. I, um, is, is it like what's what kind of advice would you have to somebody that wants to pursue rowing and, and get to the Olympics in rowing? I mean, is is there like a big difference if if you go to an Ivy League school, like they have better programs, or like how how does that all come about? Yeah, so you're you're really hitting the nail on the head for some of the rowing conversations we're having right now, like in the rowing community. Uh, so I went. Um, I picked, when I was picking colleges, I picked, I was looking at Brown, Princeton, and University of Virginia because they all had the best records for the NCAA, and I wanted to win the NCAA. So um, it's, it, I don't think a lot of students went to Brown with that intention, but like that's, it was closest to home, and they had the best record, and that's how I went there. The Ivy Leagues cannot give out athletic scholarships. And this is, this is an important shift that's happening in rowing that I am really, I am quite glad about, right? Like rowing, I, I talked earlier about how rowing had that reputation, that same reputation as golf as sort of like being like an older elitist sport. Like that shouldn't be the case, right? Like when you think about how quickly you can turn around people in boats and equipment, like it's, it's not as expensive or um, inaccessible as it appears, right? So this is, we have a great shift happening now where students are tending to go to state schools because they can get that scholarship money. Ivy Leagues cannot give out scholarship for sports. So um, I was really fortunate, both my parents uh, were in education and professors for a long time. And I think if I really understood how much college cost, I probably would have been at University of Virginia, but my parents were like, go where you wanna go. So, um, I went to Brown. My twin brother went to Bates. We both rode. Uh, he played club hockey there. Um, and so, but now students are going to Ohio State. They're going to Texas. They're going to Washington, which is, I think, great. It's making the sport more accessible and it's making the sport faster. Um, but we are starting to see that shift in Ivy Leagues aren't winning the same way. Uh, so it is interesting. And, you know, as a very proud Brown alum, like I would love for them to win some more. Um, I don't think it's out of their ability, but it is going to be different uh, when we look at compared to like what other schools like Ohio State, University of Virginia, sort of um, the access they have to certain athletic things, you know? Right. So. Brian, go ahead. Uh, can you pinpoint like one like difficult obstacle that it, that it took for you to overcome, maybe physical or mental, um, for you to achieve what you achieved in your career? Yeah, my, um, yeah, my, my, I struggled a lot with, uh, anxiety. I think a lot of rower, a lot of athletes do, right? Like I think anxiety and depression were tough because when you're practicing, um, 
it is your whole life, right? It is everything to you to train for the Olympics in most sports, you know? Um, I think it all depends on your sport, but it's like when your end-all be-all is your practice every day and you have a bad practice, it can really mess with you. And when you have a good practice, you're happy for like what? two hours and then you're like, oh, I've got to be faster next time. Um, and not all athletes think the same way, right? It's very clear that they don't, but I knew that my biggest obstacle was going to be um, having the right mindset and really being prepared to do well and using the good nerves and figuring out how to sort of um, manage the bad nerves, right? So I knew going in, you know, I knew I knew I needed a physical therapist, but the same way you have like physical therapists, you need somebody to help you with your brain. So I probably had three different, I used the resources I had. I had a psychologist, I had a sports psychologist, I had a therapist because I knew what I wanted and I knew my biggest obstacle. And it was sort of my own being able to manage. Um, and, you know, I'm really grateful that you know, I was raised by parents that were like, you know, it's okay to have mental health struggles. You know, it's okay to like take care of yourself in that way. It's not just your body. And I was grateful that, you know, Princeton, New Jersey is a place that has those, um, have those doctors, have those therapists. So um, that was the biggest obstacle for me. And I was really supportive. And there were other people on the team who were struggling with that. So, you know, when I think of there are older athletes that were inspirations to me and maybe not like that person that I idolized, but those people that helped me get there, you know, they were like, I am like, this still is a team sport, even though we're all in it for the Olympics. And then we looked out for each other. And I had an athlete that was probably seven, eight years older than me. And she was like, I'm going to look out for you the same way that I know you are going to look out for your teammates. So. That's cool. So, yeah. so we'll, we'll get you out of here with this one tonight. Um, other than a row machine, obviously, uh, you know, what exercises did you use to, like, get in shape? And and then, like, I guess the second part of the question is I saw a picture of you playing roller derby. So, you know, I know you're really strong. I have to imagine you're pretty good at that. Oh, I mean, that's all leftover hockey skills right there. Um, when we were training, it was a lot of rowing in the boat, a lot of small boats, big boats. Uh, the rowing machine, we were on that all the time. Uh, you, we have the erg, which I'm, I bet you experienced when you were rowing in college. Um, and then we have the row perfect, the RP3. That's another type of machine that we would use. And then we lifted um, and a bit of running. Uh, so it's kind of like a well-rounded group. Um, now I primarily run and bike. I still row when I can. And uh, I started... Um, I started doing roller derby right after the Olympics, pretty much, because I knew I needed a team. I, I think transitioning out of um, out of the Olympics can be really hard. Um, and I knew I was ready, and I knew it was time for me to sort of start thinking about what I was going to do next. But even, like, when we talk about Michael Phelps, like, he struggled with depression after his second retirement and first retirement. And I, like, knew I needed my team, right? So now I play for the Harbor Horrors. Um, I played for Boston Massacre a little bit. Uh, and wow. it's just – it's a lot of fun, you know? It's a lot of great people, a great environment, and also, like – it's more of a show, right? I mean, it's not like, it's still a lot of athletic um, ability, but like when we go to our bouts, like there'll be a band, they'll be serving snacks and beer. And it's just like a lot more fun than necessarily watching 30 seconds of rowing, but don't tell any of my rowing friends. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I mean, having an Olympic gold medalist, that, that's just, you know, mind-boggling to me. Uh, I really appreciate that, you know, you didn't just, like, hang up on me when I gave you a call, so that's that's really cool. Hmm. Appreciate that. And um, I want to remind everybody to check out the, you know, subscribe to the YouTube channel, check out the Facebook page, group page, join up in that, um, answer that trivia question, we'll get prize mailed out to you and just want to say thank you everyone for watching have a great night